so much of Jewish identity in the diaspora, including America, which has been a safe haven for Jews, has been an us against them mentality. Uh, and that does not ring true for younger Jews. From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, this is Trending Jewish, the Jewish podcast about everything. I'm Brian Schwartzman, and with me is my awesome co-host, Rachel Burgess. Hello, Brian. Hey, Rachel. Welcome to season two of Trending Jewish. Pretty good. Pretty good to be back. In beautiful downtown Wincote. Yep. <laughs> it, it's a downtown and it's beautiful. Please come see us in Wincote. So um, so we've had a great first season where we got to talk to all sorts of interesting people doing some great things in the Jewish world. And so we have also been feeling out, you know, what is what is really trending in the Jewish world? What are Jewish communities looking like? What is Judaism and technology looking like today? So um, so we're we're pretty excited about this season. I think so. We've lined up a bunch of interviews related to Judaism and technology, others on evolving spiritual communities. We, we've got a bunch of other uh, other topics down the down the pike that we're developing, and uh, we're hoping we get uh, sort of the same cool guests, the same uh, fun hosts, right? But, right. The- but uh, we, we we hopefully a little more focused uh, look at. Uh, at what's what's happening and and potentially what's what's going to happen in the Jewish world. Exactly. So we hope that you will continue to stay tuned and make sure that you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Castro, uh, most places. And um, it helps us if you rate us and, you know, five stars is awesome. Um, and so people can also find the show and make sure that you're able to to share this show with your friends and your family. And, um, and also, y- you know, if you have questions or you have something that you're thinking about that's going on in the Jewish world and you'd like us to dive into it and explore it, um, make sure that you message us on our website at trendingjewish.fireside.fm. And you can also find us on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash trendingjewish. We're trying to keep that up. Yeah, I think we got a pretty good thing going there. You should definitely check out um, our message to Brian for his birthday. The picture is precious. Have you seen it yet, Brian? Nope, but <laughs> probably when this airs, my birthday will be long in the past. But we can talk about it. But we, because we can talk a- about your trip to California too, going to Israel next week. Yeah, and- I'm, I am bouncing. I am bouncing all over the world and and getting to hear a lot of different questions um, from people in um, congregations and communities all over the place. And I think um, this episode in particular, I think, is going to address address some of those questions. I think where um, some people that we've been seeing in different synagogues are saying, you know, the synagogue model is not working. And how do we bring in the next generation of Jews and, um, you know, Judaism and Jewish community has changed so much? What is it supposed to look like in the future? And that's not quite a question that we have an answer for yet. Not yet, but... um... Our our, uh, our 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 next guest, our first guest of this season, definitely has uh, has about a good as good an idea as as anybody, and 
And I had sort of grouped this under the heading of evolving, emerging spiritual communities. And, and we certainly talk about that, but, but uh, you know, as in conversation, life, and um, nothing really stays in silo. And we, when we sort of break out and get into, um, get into a little bit into politics and discourse and, 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 and the role that plays in, in Jewish life today and, and, and how, we, how we can bridge, uh, bridge divides. And I, I think the conversation really went in uh, interesting, uh, unexpected ways. So I am, I'm thrilled to introduce uh, our next guest, thinker, rabbi, author, Sid Schwartz, uh, a 1980 graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Um, he has been described as a social entrepreneur. He is cre- he created and directs Kanisa Communities of Meaning Network, which is building the capacity of emerging spiritual communities across the country. He created and directs the Clergy Leadership Incubator, a program that trains rabbis to be visionary leaders. And he founded Panim, the Institute for Jewish Leadership and Values, an organization that was dedicated to inspiring and empowering Jewish youth to a life of leadership. Um, he is also the founding rabbi of Adat Shalom Reconstructionist Congregation in Bethesda, Maryland, and he is the author of three books, most recently, Jewish Megatrends, Charting the Course of the American Jewish Future. So welcome, Rabbi Sid, that is Rabbi Sid Schwartz. I, I'd like to start out um, just kind of with a broad look at, at your career, um, entrepreneurism, entrepreneurship is is really a buzzword in in the Jewish community right now. There's a strong focus on innovation. It's it's a a required class now at the uh, at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, your your alma mater. Um, but you've been you've been doing this. You've been thinking like an entrepreneur your your whole career, and 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 you grad you you've uh, graduated from here uh, a few decades ago. So I guess I was wondering if you could. Tell us about your approach and why, at, at several different points in your career, you were driven, inspired to create new organizations and, and organizations of very, very different types. Interestingly enough, uh, when I, I graduated in 1980, and at least for me, I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. It wasn't part of the lexicon then, and it wasn't, didn't have the cachet that it seems to have right now. Um, but I think what did happen for me was I didn't find in the organizations that were on the landscape and which were on the placement list, uh, the kind of settings where I could do the kind of creative work I wanted to do. Uh, and so I would say that it was more a necessity being the mother, mother of invention. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I can start tracing the entrepreneurship earlier on because even when I was at the college, I started uh, the journal of the RRA, which is called Ryo Note. Um, so I always had kind of the gumption to kind of get things going. Uh, but when I was in the, my last year as the head of the Jewish Community Relations Council in Washington, uh, I very much wanted to start an organization that would build a bridge between the worlds of Jewish learning and the world of social activism. I had actually been in both worlds uh, professionally of the rabbi of the Congregation of Media, Reconstruction Synagogue, Beth Israel Media, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'd also done a lot of activism work. I actually came to RRC initially, having spent 25 years as a Soviet jury activist. Um, and my decision even to go to rabbinical school was a last minute decision as a senior in college. I had been planning to go to law school and enter into 
a career of politics. So I always had the passion for activism and, and, and social justice, but also a deep love of, of, of Judaism, Jewish learning, and uh, the Jewish people. So that's what got me into the rabbinate. And it was odd that when I was in a position of fairly public prominence in Washington, heading up the JCRC, I found those two worlds were very much bifurcated. Uh, so you had the you kind of the synagogue Jews, uh, you had the Jewish learning Jews, and then you had the activist Jews. And those worlds didn't mix very much. And it seemed to be quite odd and, and uh, unnatural. So I had this notion of what did an integrated Jewish personality look like, and it felt like it needed both elements. So I had the idea to create an organization which became Panim, the Institute for Jewish Leadership and Values. And our motto was integrating Jewish learning, Jewish values, and social responsibility. Uh, and that's an organization that I led for 21 years. And we did some really cutting edge work, uh, not only in integrating those fields, which hadn't been uh, linked before, but also we were the, uh, among the pioneers of the whole Jewish service learning movement. Um, and I just want to say a word about, you know, what does it mean to be ahead of the curve? It sounds, it sounds a little bit boastful, but actually uh, when you're an early adopter, there are significant downsides to being an early adopter. I recall getting a tongue lashing from the national director of what was in the umbrella of all the JCRCs around the country uh, in my desire to kind of bring more Jewish content into the community relations field. He said, you know, you must not understand the job. Uh, and I several times got pushed back from my own lay leadership saying, well, Sid, if you want to do all this Jewish learning stuff, maybe you should go back to being a congregational rabbi. Uh, and yet 10 years later, after I created Panim, I was invited to keynote a national conference of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, which is the umbrella for all the CRCs in the country, on the integration of Torah and Tzedek. So, you know, it's, it's nice to kind of be around long enough to kind of have your view carry the day, but it doesn't always work that way. And similarly, on the entrepreneurship level, um, I was very interested in helping to grow a reconstruction synagogue in the Washington area when uh, my wife and I moved down here from Philadelphia, uh, we joined a liberal conservative synagogue, which was as good as it got, I suppose, for what we were looking for, but it's still I was kind of chopping at the bit. And ringing in my ear was this notion, which we heard even when I was back at RRC, that, oh, if we only could see congregations all around the country, reconstructionism would, would grow. Uh, and no one had ever done it. They just was a lot of lip service to it. So I got a couple thousand dollars from the RRC to do an outreach high holiday service, uh, which I led along with Jonathan Kliegler, but that time was a rabbinical student. Uh, and that high holiday service uh, led to the creation of Adat Shalom, which I wound up uh, leading for eight years, uh, uh, concurrently growing it as I grew Panim. Uh, so here again, to some extent, my desire to have a place to daven and to be involved in the community and to raise my children and park my family, so to speak, led for me to create a synagogue, which I thought I would kind of launch for a couple of years, but what happened there was just so special and remarkable that I had a hard time pulling away. Uh, and only did so when both Panim and Adat Shalom started to grow by leaps and bounds, and it was just humanly impossible to, uh, to lead both. So I stepped down from Adat Shalom, and I've had the nice privilege of continuing to be involved there because I'm still in the community, and uh, Fred Dobb, who was my successor, had been my student rabbi, and there's still, you know, a role that I can play at the congregation, and it gives me tremendous gratification. So 
among a lot of the projects and the communities that you've started, um, one of the projects that you talk about you've started was called Kinesa, the Kinesa Project. Um, Kinesa. Um, so what was the mission? What was um, what was the purpose of that organization? And what did you learn in in this process of creating this this project? Okay, so I, I, I want to kind of take the clock back a little bit further, because I think to understand what Kinesa is all about, I think I need to say a word about the work that I've done for about 10 years now, actually more, uh, in trying to help rabbis uh, become more creative in the synagogues that they serve. Because that actually preceded Kinesa, and you can't understand the Kinesa story without understanding that piece of it. Mm -hmm. So if I may, uh, in 2000, I published my first book, which is called Finding a Spiritual Home, yes. How a New Generation of Jews Can Transform the American Synagogue. And in that book, I profiled four synagogues, one of which was a bachelor, my own, uh, but also an Orthodox synagogue, a conservative synagogue, and a Reform synagogue including for each of those four synagogues, two spiritual autobiographies of people who were true seekers, who would never have come to Judaism were it not for the way those particular synagogues functioned. And I knew that at Adash Shalom, we had attracted a lot of people who were never going to join a synagogue in their lives. This is not the typical American Jewish family that said, okay, when we have a family and our oldest child is seven or eight years old, we'll join a synagogue, and then they just Part when their youngest child is 13 or 14 because they got there two or three, the name is uh, We were attracting true seekers who were looking into other forms of spirituality and religion. Uh, so I profiled these four synagogues and out of it emerged uh, what I argued was a new paradigm for the American synagogue, which I called at that time the synagogue community as distinct from the synagogue center, which actually defined the synagogue of the post-World War II era, which I think still typifies probably 90% plus of American synagogues. And I've argued that they no longer work. Uh, but I started to profile, what does the synagogue community look like? I now had four case studies from each of the four movements. And I argued and made the case that those four synagogues from four movements had more in common with each other than they had with the synagogues from their own movements. And since that book came out, I started essentially doing a lot of work nationally as a consultant to synagogues and a coach for rabbis to help them move to a more creative model of uh, how to lead synagogues and how to transform it. So that work blossomed when I left Panem in 2009. I created something called the Clergy Leadership Incubator, which is a two-year fellowship for rabbis on visionary leadership and change management. Because what I recognized was that one of the stumbling blocks in helping synagogues transform themselves, the rabbis don't oftentimes get a lot of training in understanding things like systems theory and change management. And that's something that I had you know, schooled myself in. And we're now in the third cohort of that fellowship, which has really helped seed some very interesting new projects in American synagogues, again, all across the denominational spectrum. This project is not just for reconstructionists. We have rabbis from Orthodox to reform, renewal, and everything in between. Among the rabbis in my CLE program, CLE is the acronym for Clergy Leadership Incubator, and it's a play on the word clay kodesh, because in Hebrew, the word for clergy is a clay kodesh, so we call it CLE. Uh, among the rabbis in the CLE fellowship are some rabbis who we call rabbinic entrepreneurs. Uh, so some are solo rabbis having their own pulpit. Some are assistants serving uh, as a second rabbi in a much larger, better resource congregation. 
and some of our rabbinic entrepreneurs trying to create new models of spiritual community. And that's the area that I've been most intrigued about. You know, what, because I, because frankly, even my own experience, it's easier to create a new paradigm synagogue model from scratch and taking a synagogue that's been around a hundred years or more and turn it around. That could be really challenging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Having had some success planting the seed for entrepreneurial synagogues and new models of spiritual community, I started to look at a large landscape. And that actually is what led to my third book. I'm skipping my second. We can come back to it. <laughs> Jewish Megatrends was essentially taking the same lens that I used to examine the American synagogue and finding a spiritual home. And I said, look, what's unique about the Jewish community is that it's not simply a religious phenomenon. That's why Jews have such a hard time engaging in dialogue with Christians because we're not counterpart to the Christian phenomenon. We are, as Mordecai Kaplan stated 100 years ago, we're a multi-dimensional civilization. And as a result, many Jews are involved in Jewish life quite intensely who may never set foot in a synagogue. And so I wanted to ask a question, what does the rest of the landscape of the American Jewish community look like beyond synagogues? And, that, and Jewish megatrends looked at that model. And in megatrends, I argue the following, that at the same time that over the past 20 to 30 years, the legacy institutions of American Jewish life, namely synagogues, Jewish federations, membership organizations, and JCCs, which make up a large part of the organized Jewish community, while those institutions are more in steep decline, it would be erroneous to conclude that American Jewish life was unraveling. Because I argue that at the same time that that was happening, that there was a concurrent explosion of activity in the innovation sector. Young Jews creating new models of Jewish identity and Jewish community and Jewish uh, uh, associations, uh, which is redefining the American Jewish landscape. And that's the book that led to Kenisa. So now you understand why you were a little bit ahead of time by asking that <laughs> question, but I had to give you that by way of background. Mm-hmm. So in our Kenisa project, and it's subtitled The Communities of Meaning Network, we're identifying new models of how Jews are now organizing to attract mostly younger Jews, although not exclusively younger Jews. I'm proud of the fact that while there's this mania about how do you attract millennials, the, the, the phenomenon of what we call communities of meaning is not exclusively a millennial phenomenon. We have people, and we've been gathering for the past three years now, individuals who are the entrepreneurs creating new models of Jewish life in six different sectors. Social justice, eco-sustainability, Jewish learning, spiritual practice, arts and culture, and spiritual communities, meaning non-traditional synagogues. That's the sixth area. Uh, And as we gather these folks together, uh, what's amazing is that a lot of these organizations, that some of which are only a few years old, are attracting Jews in ways that legacy organizations no longer can, but they are seriously under-resourced. And so the network we've created is a way for these innovative groups to essentially work together building a larger network. And as the network grows, we are increasingly able to make the case to the mainstream community, in particular funders and their federation system, that these organizations are not a fringe phenomenon. It is actually the new trend in Jewish life that needs to be supported and given more shelf space. Can you, can you give us some examples of the um, types of organizations you're working with and how they might be outside the, the proverbial box? 
Sure, happy to. So let me do a base. We have a model which actually uses uh, five themes. Uh, we've organized our Kinesa network into five themes. Uh, let me see the themes and I'll give you one or two examples from each of the groups, okay? So the five themes are Kila, which we use as a term for community or the term I like to use here is covenantal community. Tzedek, social justice. Chokhmah, Jewish learning. Kiddushah, uh, sacred purpose. And Yitzirah, creativity. So let me give you some examples from each. And actually, when we find organizations, they actually rank themselves or categorize themselves as saying, what is your primary theme that you drive, uh, that drives people coming to you? And what might be secondary themes? So in the Kilai area, I'll give you a few examples. It's interesting, probably the two of the best known that are out there today that are not so small anymore uh, is Avodah and Moshe House. Mm. And I mention those because Let's be aware that those organizations, Abu Dhabi has been around for at least 10 years, probably a bit more, and Moshe House a little bit less than that. But you have all the young people now graduating college who are having an experience of living in a communal setting. They're living in a, in a joint house, okay? What you w- walk away with is you understand community on a much deeper level than the experience that people have when they join a synagogue. Now, what's interesting is that if you go to people in synagogues or talk to their rabbis, They'll use the same term community, but ask anyone who's lived in an Avodah house or lived in a Moisha house and say, is this like being a member of a synagogue? And they'll say, no way, Jose, it's not the same. <laughs> There's something much deeper going on in terms of obligation to mission, obligation to the other people in, in the house. Uh, and in my view, synagogues have to aspire to that level of what I call covenantal community, where there is deep commitment to mission and to one another. The kind of groups that we've been finding uh, in Kila, which are so interesting, uh, there's a group uh, that came to our last conference uh, called the Living Tree Alliance in Vermont. Uh, these are folks who actually own a couple hundred acres, and they're about to invite people to come in, uh, build houses on the property in a co-housing arrangement, work the land, and engage in Jewish practice with one another in a little, what might be called in Israel, Moshav or Kibbutz. Wow. Another fascinating project we came upon is something called Alliance Community Reboot. Now, this is fascinating to me because I'm uh, trained as a Jewish historian. In the 1880s, at the same time that thousands of Jews were going from Eastern Europe to Palestine to create a a movement of Jews coming back to the land in Palestine, in Eretz Israel, some Jews went to Vineland, New Jersey, and created an agricultural settlement in Vineland, New Jersey. Mm. And for almost 100 years, you had... Jewish farmers and Jewish poultry industry, whatever else, has been abandoned. The great-great-grandson of the founder of that Alliance Community of Island, New Jersey, has now bought the property, including the old synagogue. And here again, inviting people to come and move onto the land to create, again, a community in a place that had a community more than 100 years ago. It's kind of amazing. Um, I have a question for you, actually, um, regarding these communities, because they're very unique. And when we think about a synagogue or we think about a a JCC or federation, we kind of have those financial models. Uh, We have that down to a system. We have membership. We have donations. Um, there's, There's a system in place to keep them financially stable. But for some of these newer organizations, I think there's an aspiration for congregations to be um, as creative as these different organizations that you're working with, but 
the idea of how do you keep that financially sustainable is a bit up in the air. So how how are these smaller communities finding themselves able to sustain themselves financially? Yeah, it's a great question and, and a huge challenge. And the fact of the matter is uh, we now have in our network, because we're involved in a national mapping project of these communities of meaning, uh, we're up over 200 organizations we have found. And what they have in common mostly is that they are severely under-resourced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and furthermore, and I say this with as much uh, understanding and compassion as I can muster, they're somewhat organizationally immature, by which I mean the fact that a person is passionate about some aspect of Jewish life and builds an organization or launches an organization to kind of advance that doesn't mean they know how to build an organization and scale it up because it's everything from fundraising and building a board and understanding mission and understanding marketing and things like that. And they don't all have those skills. Part of what we're doing is actually we're creating a skill building network and that's why people come to us to help them in that regard. And I also believe that there could be a, uh, a partnership in many cases between some of the legacy institutions that are having a hard time attracting younger Jews and some of these emerging communities of meaning that have captured young Jews in a very exciting way, but are still looking for more organizational sustainability. I'm, I'm, I'm 42. I'm not, not a millennial. I guess, I guess I'm a Gen Xer. I've kind of thought of myself as hip, but yet I, I keep meeting younger Jews in their 20s and 30s who just have totally different views of the world and frames of reference and assumptions than me. And, and, and they're really interested in, 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 in Jewish life and Judaism and, and, and certainly not in the way I or, or my parents would have thought about it. And, and, and reading through Jewish megatrends, I was really struck by the way you um, framed it as, as tribal Jews versus covenantal Jews. It seemed, you know, as, as compelling an explanation as, as any I've seen as to a generational divide. And, and I was wondering, you know, how you see, if you could explain what the, you know, a little bit about what these, um, you know, what these groups are and how, how you, um, how you came to that and, and also how, how you see tribal Jews and covenantal Jews, um, you know, interacting, understanding one another, um, you know, collaborating to get together on this, on this Jewish enterprise. Right. Uh, I appreciate the question. So the, the model I use is the fact is this and tribal has to the modern ear a slightly pejorative tone. I don't intend that because uh, let me first say that I am uh, a tribal Jew through and through. It simply means is my way of uh, labeling Jews who identify strongly with the past, present and future of the Jewish people uh, and cast their lot in with those people. That's what makes you a tribal Jew. Uh, and the reality is that most of the organized Jewish community was created by tribal Jews for tribal Jews. Unfortunately, many of the younger Jews, let me talk about my, my kids. I have three millennials, okay? My kids are 32, 30, and 28. Now, they may be exceptional, like all the kids from Lake Wobegon, if we can still use that analogy. Uh, but nonetheless, their peers, that cohort, uh, are post-tribal Jews, they don't respond in the way that my generation, or certainly not my parents' generation, responded to appeals based on remember the Holocaust, let's fight for the state of Israel, uh, the world's against us, let's pull the wagons around in a circle. So much of Jewish identity in the diaspora 
including America, which has been a safe haven for, for Jews, has been an us-against-them mentality. Uh, and that does not ring true for younger Jews. And as a result, part of, the, uh, part of why legacy institutions are suffering now is that their core message emerging out of that tribal assumption about, you know, let's have ethnic solidarity because we need each other for survival simply doesn't resonate with the experience of younger Jews. Now, I use the term covenantal Jews because, interestingly enough, as I've spent most of my career working with younger Jews, Jews not even half my age, but even less than that now that I'm in my 60s. And what I saw is that they resonate to core ideas that go back to Mount Sinai, going back to Torah, but it's not cloaked in tribal language, meaning that talk about the idea of seeing every human being in the image of God, the Tzalem Elohim, okay? That resonates deeply with people, uh, young people, the idea of, of, uh, of allying with the most needy. If you spend time with tribal Jews, they'll tell you about all the Jews in need around the world, either poor Jews in our own country or Jews in Israel or, or in endangered communities in, in, in France or somewhere else. But ask a millennial Jew, they say, Jews are hardly the most vulnerable people on the planet. I, I care about uh, Rohingya Muslims in Burma. You know, I care about uh, Sir, people, Syrian Muslims who are being shelled in Syria today uh, with chemical weapons. Uh, that's what they're going to resonate to. Talk to them about uh, uh, the pursuit of peace and justice, uh, the, res- the fact that Jews resonate uh, to peace and justice issues, even to the desire of Palestinians for, for a state and homeland. In a lot of tribal settings, the sympathy for Palestinians does not ring true because they see that as running counter to our desire to create a safe and secure Israel. I don't think those two things should be antithetical or are antithetical. Uh, so these are some things that young people resonate to. So I use the term covenantal Jews to describe Jews who are living lives that are aligned with core Jewish values and principles, but whose loyalties and affiliations are maybe only in potential with the Jewish community. In my view, if we play our cards right, if we create organizations that put mission first, put Jewish values first, put ethics first, put human rights first, we have a tremendous opportunity to capture that generation of covenantal Jews. But the jury's out whether we can pull it off. And many of the Jews that I'm meeting and pulling together in my Kinesah Communities of Meeting Network are, I would say, deeply ambivalent about whether they want to be tied to the Jewish community or not. It really depends on how the community shows up for them in terms of the things that they care about. Let me say one other thing to your question, Brian, because, uh, and and this will sound harsh, but I think it's true. You asked the question, to what extent do tribal Jews and covenantal Jews understand each other? And I would say almost not at all. Almost (laughs) not at all. It is a very big divide. And because I have a foot in both worlds, I'm trying to build bridges between those worlds because we desperately need it. Because if we don't build effective bridges there, we will lose the next generation in, in large part. How did you bridge that for yourself in your own mind? Because you, you, you say that you are very much a tribal Jew. Um, do you feel like the, that you've bridged that gap? And if so, how did you do it? Well, I'll give you just a couple examples. I, I, I've done it. You don't do you don't bridge it in your mind. Mm-hmm. You got to bridge it in, in in the way you walk the talk. Uh, so, 
you know, when I was the head of the Jewish Community Relations Council in Washington, I was I was the man, meaning I would represent in the old 50 cents, okay? I represented the establishment, right? Uh, and yet, uh, during my tenure, uh, there was a, there was a, Beit Mishpacha was the gay and lesbian synagogue in Washington, which for years was trying to gain admission as an affiliate member of the Jewish Community Council, and they were banned year after year. And so I helped them come into the organization because they said, you can't, why would you exclude a gay and lesbian synagogue? This is before, you know, LGBT lifestyle was more accepted, but we're talking about now in the uh, mid-1980s. It was very controversial. Uh, Similarly, uh, groups that were doing a lot of peace work in Israel-Palestine were groups that I also invited to come in and be involved in our conversation, which was, again, very edgy, and I took a lot of heat for that. So on the one hand, I was representing the established Jewish Jewish community, but I was trying to build bridges between organizations that were more on the margins. There was a time, I'll tell you one other anecdote, uh, in my Panim career, uh, we brought through Washington over 20,000 young people for these seminars called Panim Al Panim, where we use Jewish values to inspire activism towards issues, not only for the Jewish people, but for the world at large. We had a very close relationship with APAC, uh, because if you want to teach, teach young people about activism, there isn't a better school than APAC, nor in my opinion, a better cause than APAC. And we, would, we had a stronger alliance with APAC, they spoke to our kids and the like. But there was a day, literally, when I was on Capitol Hill doing lobby work with APAC in the morning and in the afternoon, representing what was then Rabbis for Human Rights North America, now renamed Shu'ah, the Rabbinical for Human Rights. The same day I was on the Hill with APAC in the morning, I was delivering a letter of protest to the Israeli embassy in the afternoon, protesting the home demolitions in Jerusalem, not because the homes were occupied by terrorists or the parents of terrorists, but because Palestinian families in East Jerusalem didn't have a permit to put on an addition to their homes in which they could sleep child number five, six, and seven. Not because they didn't file for a permit, but because the Israeli authorities don't give permits to Palestinians to put additions on their homes. And we felt that was wrong. Now, I'm not schizophrenic. I'm the same person. I de- care deeply about Israel's safety and security which is why I allied myself with APAC. But I also de- believe deeply that Israel, the Jewish homeland, should represent the highest values of the Jewish tradition. And when it acts in, at variance to those values, I will speak out. Now, that is not easy, uh, easy road, easy line to kind of uh, balance because you get criticized from both sides. Uh, the folks who are more in the progressive left will say, what are you hanging out with APAC for? And APAC folks saying, what are you hanging out with these lefties who always have bad things to say about Israel for? So it's hard to walk that line. But so I think that for me, I've always had deep sympathies with Jews on the margin. But I also have tremendous respect for the community that a generation prior to mine built to create the most, one of the most effective and organized ethnic subcommunities that America has ever seen. I mean... I wasn't planning to go deep into um, deep into the Middle East today, but I mean, I think you're hitting on something where it it seems impossible to disentangle the tribal con- covenantal divide with 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 the current conversation or or lack of on on Israeli politics on 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 the conflict. Um, I mean, do you do you see that? And and I mean, I wonder how many how many people are there 
out there still like you who who you know who aren't schizophrenic but 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 can sort of see both sides and and uh, work on different causes simultaneously. You know, we're in an age of growing polarization and growing partisanship, and it's been made worse by this administration. So I think we're going in the wrong direction. I think a lot of people pay lip service for the need to talk across difference, uh, but it doesn't much happen. People are choosing sides all the time. Um, and I think we are a weaker community for it as a Jewish community, and we are weaker America for it. I mean, I, I worry as much as, you know, I, I wear a rabbi's hat, a kippah, so to speak, most of the time. Uh, I worry even more for the experiment called American democracy, because I think it is seriously at risk. And I don't think we can be involved in our own Jewish cocoon, thinking about how we build vibrant communities, while asking what is our community's contribution to healing the heart of democracy. And I use that phrase, which is actually the title of a book by Parker Palmer, uh, really one of the great prophetic voices of our time, who says that the crisis of America is not just a political crisis, it's also a spiritual crisis. And I think, you know, Jews and rabbis who care about Judaism have got to care at least as much, if not more, about the experiment called American democracy, which is so much at risk today. I think we're, um, we're running out about out of time. We could probably do this. Well, we could probably do this all day. I'm sure you've, you've got a full uh, schedule. Um, with, with so much uh, hand-wringing and concern for the future of the American Jewish community, I mean, I get a sense that you really more than hold on to hope, have, have a strong sense of optimism about the American Jewish future. Is that, is that fair to say? And where, where, do you, where do you draw your optimism from, if, if so? Well, you know, it's funny because just last week we had our third national gathering of our Kinesot consultation. Uh, and I have to say, uh, having spent most of my career running retreats, uh, it is so exciting to be in a room with some of the most creative Jews I have ever met. And what's even more exciting is the fact that, unlike most Jewish gatherings, and I go to many, most people in that room, uh, I asked a question when I first spoke to the group, I said, how many people in this room uh, know 10 or more other people in the room? And there were two hands in the air out of 50. The vast majority of people in that room didn't know more than two or three people in the room. So we're bringing people in who are working in some kinds in sometimes in isolation from each other, who are seeing that there are other people like them who may not be have the same spin on you know Jewish identity necessarily, but are also trying to reinvent Jewish life in our moment, in our time. So when I see young Jews putting so much energy into creating new forms of Jewish identification, which are succeeding at attracting Jews in ways that legacy organizations are, are not. How can I not be optimistic? Uh, it's only a matter of, of I mean, although they'll, I said before, they're under-resourced and need a lot of help, but we're well on the rate, well, way to doing that. And because I've got substantial inroads into the organized community personally, uh, my commitment in this network is to essentially help the organized community to see how much they have to gain by investing very heavily in this emerging network of, of uh, new communities of meaning. Well, I really appreciate um, all your time and, and, and thank you for all your, your work that you, you do. It's, it's easier, uh, easier to be optimistic about the, uh, the Jewish future after, um, after speaking with you. I, I, hope, um, 
I hope we have a long podcast run on the on the air and get to uh, get to repeat guests because we'd love to we'd love to have you back in the future. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to also where all of these different organizations that, again, you are right at the cutting edge where you are, you know, the horizons in front of you. And we don't know what that destination is going to look like. And I can't wait to talk to you again to see what kind of perspective you're seeing. Well, thanks for the interview and good luck to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so thank you very much for listening and uh, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Castro, and we're in most places. So make sure that you subscribe, tell your friends about us. And we also would appreciate it if you would give us a five star and, you know, rate us, give us a great review, Um, helps people find the show. And we also love to hear good things about us. So we do want your questions, your comments, your ideas for episodes and people we should talk to. So make sure you send us a message on our website, trendingjewish.fireside.fm. Or you can also go to our Facebook page and send us a message there. So that is facebook.com slash trendingjewish. And if you like this program and you uh, like what you see from Reconstructing Judaism, um, your support is always appreciated. So um, we encourage you, please, um, if you can make a gift to Reconstructing Judaism, just go to reconstructingjudaism.org and click donate. Thanks and good night. Leitrat. Leitrat.